Well, the Sunstone thing began in 1984 when Margaret gives her first speech. Her first speech is... Um, the rib. Or yeah, the missing rib, the forgotten place of queens and priestesses in the establishment of Zion. And she was the one who, who actually first spoke on this subject. Now, in all fairness to me, the information from this speech was something that Margaret and I had talked about for a long time. In fact, since 1971 when I first met her. Was this women and the priesthood thing important to you? Yes, it was. It wasn't important at first because it took me a while to figure out that it affected women. Because my first, uh, my first interest in this came with the idea of the fullness of the priesthood. And the fullness of the priesthood was an idea that I began to develop with some other guys at BYU, uh, whose names I could mention but I won't, uh, in a class that we put together, in a graduate religion class that we put together, of which uh, Brother Cowan, the blind religion professor back then, was the graduate advisor. He never showed up, and he didn't see anything because he was blind. But he was a good man. And uh, we, what we did is we took, there were maybe six to eight of us, and we divided up the Journal of Discourses, the Histories of the Church, the Joseph Smith Papers up at the church office building, and the minutes of the Council of the Twelve, which were available to us, and some other sources that were available to us. Back then, there was this period where documents were open because Leonard Arrington was there. And we went through these things as quite closely, making notes. We had to use note cards. We didn't have laptops or anything. So we're writing note cards, and we all came out of this thing with boxes of note cards where every time it was ever mentioned, the fullness of the priesthood, the fullness of the apostleship, the second anointing, the second endowment, whatever, you know, even tangential reference to the holy order, whatever it is, we would write down the notes. And we gathered this all together after a semester and read through them all, and I kept them. And it made no sense. It made no sense to us until we realized, you know, it's, you, you look at something and, and you're trying to fit it into the framework of your belief structure that you've got. I mean, how you see the priesthood, how we saw the priesthood then. And I suddenly realized that there is a priesthood apart from the one to which we are ordained that was given in the temple. And suddenly it came to me and to the others. I'm not saying I was the principal one. We were, it came out of discussions, and we're, we're sitting there talking at night trying to figure out what could this possibly mean. And, and, and after many discussions and, and thinking it through, and this was before I went to Washington, and uh, then when I went to Washington, I'm still communicating by letter on an old royal typewriter. I'm writing to some of my friends, particularly Greg Alvord. It was a very close friend of mine. He's dead now, but he's a very close friend of mine. And I suddenly, I got, I got the flu. When I arrived in Washington, I had the flu. I was staying with some friends of mine there, and I had the flu, and I was sick for two weeks. I, I didn't even leave their basement because I was afraid I might infect their kids, so I just stayed down there. But I would force myself to get up and write this letter. I would keep working on this letter. It was like 25 pages long, single-spaced, an onion skin. And when I was done with this letter, I realized that I had worked through these quotes. I had figured it out. I didn't realize I was figuring it out, but I had. I said, well, this could mean this and this could be. And suddenly I realized that when you go to the temple, that the, 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 that the priesthood that we get outside the temple, the one that we're ordained to as priests, teachers, deacons, you know, elders, 70s high priests, apostles, that priesthood is provisional. It's like a scaffolding that's necessary to build the temple. Once the temple is built, you can take down the scaffolding because it was intended that the priesthood be given in the temple. 
that the investment in the robes of the priesthood by being actually dressed in these priesthood robes in the temple, you are actually having the priesthood placed upon you, which is very similar to the way that they, they when they make a duke or an earl or even the queen of England, they put robes and finally a crown, scepter, orb, and all of these are symbols that are going on in the temple, which is the creation of queens and priestesses and kings and priests. So those this, other things are offices. Those other things the are provisional itself priesthood. It's a provisional priesthood. It's like, you know, you got a temporary license. But the permanent driver's license, the one that sticks, the one that's notarized by God himself, that one comes only through the temple. And it doesn't even come through the temple. Does the language really say that? Well, you, I'm not going to repeat on this thing, the language of the temple, which I can do, but there are several places in the temple where it tells you that it's with the, with you know, in this position, you can do anything. It tells you that. And it says it to the women as it's saying it to the men. And so, and then if you understand the shape of the robes and, and what they're trying to depict in their way, and if you understand the, the garment and its markings and all of that and what that's supposed to mean, and, and all of these uh, things, and that you are actually, one, you're in the priesthood, you are, robe, you are, you are then a child of thinking of yourself as Adam and Eve, but thinking of yourself as Jesus, because all of these are vicarious identities that you take. It's kind of like the Kachina ceremonies that the Hopis do, where they, they become the God in the, in the dance. That's what the person becomes. We become the God. And then the blows of death and all the other things are inflicted upon the God, because when, they, when God himself takes upon these pains and penalties and these uh, punishments, it redounds to the benefit of all of those who wrap themselves in his grace or in his works or in his vicarious work. That's what the temple is about. Well, suddenly I'm writing this to my friend Greg and I'm explaining this to him and, and I realize that the, the, the difference between the provisional priesthood, which is given in the church as a means to get things done, but then ultimately the, the priesthood that's going to last, that's eternal, is in the temple. And then I realize how this connects to the second amount, endowment or anointings or whatever you want to call them. And so I lay it all out in this letter and I send it to Greg. And, he, and then later that becomes the, be, the beginning of our understanding of this. And it was later after I married Margaret when I was showing her these notes that she began to say, well then this is how the women got the priesthood. And then she actually did her own independent study of Joseph Smith's speeches in 1842 to the Relief Society and realized that in those speeches he's preparing to make them priests. He says, I'm going to make of the society a kingdom of priestesses. He, he begins to prepare. I'm thinking of the Relief Society as a kind of provisional priesthood organization, kind of like the quorums of deacons and elders and whatever, wherever of the men, and that the Relief Society was going to be a provisional priesthood organization for women, but that that would prepare them to go to the temple where they would have the same rights as men to preside as priests and function as priestesses with their husbands. And that, was the, that work led to her seminal speech in 1984, which is the first Sunstone speech that Annie Toscano gave, and that was the speech. And she was asked to give it twice because it was, it was so amazing to people how she put it together that they asked her to give it again the next day, or, and they did. And I heard it the second time because I was watching the kids the first time at home. Um, I decided that because we they had marked my records and that I couldn't speak in church anymore and they were going to let me, that I could 
my vow not to speak without authority from my bishop or a state president, it, all bets were off. And that's when I started in 1985 uh, giving Sunstone presentations. And in these Sunstone presentations, if, you, if somebody wants to go back and dig these up and look at them, and I have published some in the Sanctity of Dissent, but not, not all of them, uh, they're all about the centrality of Christ and Christology, and that nothing makes sense in Mormonism, including the temple, apart from seeing it from a Christological point of view, and the importance of em emphasizing grace rather than works. Even though I got nothing against doing good works, it isn't the thing that changes us. There has to be a, a transformation that's essentially divine. So that's what, that's, and that's my Sunstone speeches from 1985, and they become more strident and more um, obstreperous as, because I'm frustrated. What did you want to happen? What did you expect? That the, the, the boy didn't, President Packer or Elder Packer or Elder Hinckley would go, oh, dang, we've got it wrong. Yes, that's what I expected. <laughs> that they'd go, okay, yeah. Paul, we got to listen to Paul, yeah. and then we're going to adopt that and start yeah, saying Yeah, I thought it would be like the council. I'm stupid, aren't I? I thought it would no, be I'm like the council of Jerusalem, where when Paul goes to the council of Jerusalem and says, well, we can't be circumcising Gentiles. If the grace of God comes upon them, there's no need for them to become Jews first. And Peter says, you're right. That's what I thought would happen. But Paul, what was Paul's office when he did that? Who knows? I mean, it, it, to me, it hasn't anything to do with the office. Right. It has to do with the pure reality of the truth of the thing. So you have a really egalitarian view of, of what uh, being in the church. You well, know. I think that, that um, the view that the apostles are going to spoon-feed us the gospel is the damnedest, stupidest idea that ever came across Christianity, because that's not what they did in the early church. They never did that. It wasn't Joseph standing up by a tree and everyone sitting down listening to Joseph talk about... I'm talking about the apostles of Jesus. Okay, okay. Oh, the early, early church. Okay, yeah. Yeah, the primitive church, as okay. they call sorry, it. Some places. Yeah. yeah, and Joseph Smith is, is shoveling out doctrine as fast as he can, but he's not sitting down holding people's hands. That's one of the big problems. He's a revelator. He's writing stuff, publishing stuff, but he doesn't, you know... If anything, he withdrew. To, I mean, he would, he would, um, you know. There's sometimes he would obfuscate because he was afraid he would get persecuted. I mean, once you've been tarred and feathered, and you lost a couple of kids, and your wife's upset at you, and you've been driven out of one city and another, and people stand to kill you, you you're, you become more conscientious about what you say in public and private. But he was very bold even to the end. No, but I don't think that he's spoon feeding people the gospel. He's He's bringing on more stuff, some of the which, as I said before, earlier on in this interview, some of which in Nauvoo confused people about what he meant in the 30s. What he says in the 40s seems to contradict what he said in the 30s. That is true. That, that pe people pick up, I believe, because he did not spoon-feed it to them. He did not show them how the stuff he's telling them in the 40s did not contradict the stuff he said in the 30s. He assumed that they could figure that out. He had a lot more sense of egalitarianism than other people did. He, th he thought people were as smart as he was and could follow him and would understand what he was talking about. Apparently, this isn't true. <laughs> but, but, but you, so you had this sincere, you had this sincere belief that you had the theology figured out, at least some of the central theology figured out more than maybe most people did. 
and that if you spoke publicly and eventually loud enough or charismatically enough or intelligently enough, that you could maybe even change and shift the direction of church theology in, the, in a more Christ-centered, correct sort of way. I, su- I don't want to say that, that, that I thought that because, because it sounds too arrogant, and I don't think I thought that. What I thought hoped, was, it, maybe. What, what I thought was, first of all, I did not think I had Mormon theology figured out. What I felt that I had figured out was the core gospel. The core gospel was Christ and him crucified, that he was the supreme being, that we had to see through the lenses of that belief, that when we looked at the temple, we weren't seeing, we weren't, we weren't seeing pagan, we weren't giving it a Masonic interpretation or a pagan interpretation or a New Age interpretation. We had to see that the holes in the garment were the wounds of Jesus. We had to see that the garment that you wear on your body is the skin of the animal that represents his sacrifice, so you're wrapping yourself in his grace. That the priesthood robes that you're putting on are the robes of the order of the priesthood after the order of the Son of God. That you cannot get around him. You cannot go to the Father and, and somehow sidestep the Son. The Son of God is greater than the Father. Because although the Father may have been the creator, the Son saved the creation by a personal sacrifice where he did not insulate himself from pain, but he bore the greatest part in his own person. He doesn't send somebody else to do the dirty work. He bears the cross himself and calls us to do the same. I thought that that message, and that there's no hell, that the worst of us get a a degree of glory. I thought those messages of of uh, Christocentricity and grace and universal salvation, that these were the heart and soul of Mormonism, and that all the other theologies and speculative theologies that may grow out of the statements of Joseph Smith could be understood best in light of these uh, teachings that are the pillars of the church. And as you're not not experiencing or, or hearing those in everyday church services, build to build resentment or frustration? I didn't care about that. I couldn't figure out why the apostles weren't doing this. I mean, what are the apostles of if not Jesus Christ? Well, they're talking about Jesus and repentance. And are they? And, yeah, sure. Yeah, such that when I give a speech about Jesus, I don't get persecuted because it sounds like their speech about Jesus? I don't think they do a very good job because I don't think you can go through their speech. Lately, they've been doing a better job because lately they've been persecuted by the fundamentalist evangelical Christians and they want Mitt Romney to get elected, and so therefore they're, they're skewing their teachings more toward this because they have a political reason for doing it. But why weren't they doing it in the 60s and 70s and the 50s and the 40s? You're saying they're emphasizing grace more now. Yes, of course. And, and now they've put, you know, Jesus Christ's name is bigger in the logo, and, and they put his name on the Book of Mormon as another witness for Christ, all of which is great. And when Time Magazine asked Gordon B. Hinckley about, you know, Jesus or, or God once being a man and man becoming God, yeah, I would not, if I were Gordon, if I were the president of the church, they'd ask me that and say, sure, we believe that, because that's in the New Testament. The New Testament says that when Jesus comes, we shall be like him. Our doctrine merely says that we're going to be gods like him. What does it mean to be like him if it doesn't mean to be like him? I mean, if the evangelicals are all upset about this, and the, and the, and the Pentecostals are all upset about what the Mormons believe, it's because they haven't got the sensitivity to the scripture. The scripture can be interpreted the way we say and if Christ says that when, we, when he comes, we're going to be like him, I, I believe that. That's what I would have said. This may offend some people, but 
you know, we should stop being offended because we have different views of very difficult issues. It doesn't mean we're out of the family of Christians simply because we have maybe even the wrong view. And so, but he didn't. He said, well, that was just a, a couplet. As God once was, man is now, as man... How does it say? As, as man is, as God, God once was. As, as man as God once was, and as God as man may become. Right. That's it. That famous couplet that I get wrong for some reason. That, that couplet is not just a couplet. It is a very important clarification of Christ, Christian theology, which really is going to the question of spiritual maturation from going to a creation of God, to a child of God, to a friend of God, to a joint heir with God in the, in the, in the uh, Godhead. And that's all that that means, and it's right there in the New Testament. Just like baptism for the dead is in the New Testament, and terrestrial, celestial, you know, telestial, terrestrial and celestial is in St. Paul's writing. It's not like Mormon doctrine invented a lot of this. It's, it's that it's there, and it's clarified, and it's expanded. And, and that's a lot of what Joseph Smith's work is. The idea that God has a body, well, we should have known that from the resurrection, now, the idea that God, Jesus, has a father, we should have understood that that's what St. Paul means, you know, as in Adam all men die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Who is going to be the father of Christ's body, if not Adam? Because it says in there, and, and who is going to be his mother? Well, it's going to be Mary. But Eve is involved in that. There is an attempt in... In, in Mormonism to play out all of these suggested prophetic statements of the Old Testament in Christological terms. He is, like it says in the Battle Hymn of Republic, he is the hero born of woman, pardon me, he is the hero born of woman who, who will crush the serpent's head. Well, that relates back to the child of Adam and Eve. And Christ becomes, is kind of, and what the Adam-God doctrine was, that, that Christ is actually the literal child of Adam and Mary. And it's a very strange theology. I admit this. People don't like it. They like, I don't know why they like Trinitarianism. It's not really much more logical, but they're more used to it. You know, it's kind of like the weather. You so, kind of like the weather you're, you're so, used to. So what does it mean if you take this theology really seriously and that you, th you think you understand it pretty well, let's say back in the 80s, mm -hmm. but none of the traditional Christian churches have it right, and not even Mormonism, which you still probably hold back then as, as God's true church. What does that say about God and Jesus, that they've got this theology that's so crucial, yet none of the churches have got it right? And it's you, it's you, Paul Toscano, who's figured it out, and all the others. Well, what does that mean for, I, the, for the validity of any church or for any credibility that God or Jesus might even have? Because nobody understands it but Paul Toscano and a couple of his friends. Well, I don't think that's true. I no, think but did, did you think about this back well, then? Well, sure. I'm very disturbed by the fact that that um, over the period of from Joseph Smith's death to now, that the church has abandoned much of what Joseph Smith taught. That his ideas are not explored and ramified. It bothers me a great deal. It bothers me that if it weren't for the historical reality of polygamy, we would have crawled back into Protestantism a long time ago. But because polygamy is in our history, the Protestants won't have us back. But what does that say about the 
just a belief in God and Jesus at all if, if nobody can get it right? I don't think it matters whether you get it right. Oh, what's the purpose of this whole deal then? Uh, what I mean by that is I don't think that if a person is good-hearted and they have and they're trying to live their life according to the lights that God has given them, that that, that is their judgment. That is what they'll be judged on. Who, that they love one another, then they are his disciples. So the theology doesn't matter after all. The theology matters, but it, it, it's not. What I'm trying to say is I think it's the duty of the leaders of the church and of the church itself to teach and to stick by the revelations of Joseph Smith. Christ revealed himself through Joseph Smith in a way that we are supposed to honor. I think it would be way helpful if we did that. I think we wouldn't be losing as many members as we do. We would not have only a program to bring them in and give them milk. We would actually give them meat after milk, and they would be able to stay in. There would be more. I think that's the problem. The problem is not that I, I think that it's essential to an individual salvation that they get doctrine right. I don't think that's true. I think it helps to get it right. I think getting the right foundation, it's not like, you know, just because your foundation is cracked doesn't mean you can't live in the house. You, you can live in the house. It, it's just, it's not very helpful to have a cracked foundation. When floods come, things get, they leak, it makes things worse. But it doesn't mean that there isn't a church there. It doesn't mean that it's not the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's just that when something new is revealed, it's not a good idea to abandon it. You should stick with it until you understand it. You know, this reminds me of the discussion I had with Margaret, is that both of you, it wasn't, the problem wasn't that you loved the church too little. The problem was that you loved it and its theology intensely. And so it was hard for you to see that be dismissed and marginalized and, and turned away from. Well, I didn't, that seems like it was the backbone of your conviction. Well, I didn't leave my family in California to join Mormonism so that I could run across the recreation hall with a spoon in my mouth and an egg and sit on a balloon. I am not interested in the MIA, and I'm not interested in Mormon culture. I, am interested in, I was interested in the revelations of God through Joseph Smith. That's what I was converted to. And if you get converted to one thing, and then you find that the leaders of the church are embarrassed about it, and they, they can't dump it out of the handcart of our theology fast enough. I mean, I, I don't know. What's wrong with them? What are they embarrassed about? They never talk about... From general conference, you couldn't tell we were Mormons. But for the fact that we keep showing the logo and showing, you know, soft focus... Well, I'm talking about Joseph Smith. And Joe, yeah, but not talking about what he said. I mean, yes, they talk about Joseph Smith. They use the name Joseph Smith, but do they ever go down and analyze the King Fala Discourse or the June 16th Discourse or the Discourse on the Father and the Son that he gives earlier on or the Discourse on the Priesthood that he gives in October of 1842 or whatever when he said the Priesthood hasn't yet been restored? Do they analyze his statements? No, they don't want to. They want the Conestoga wagons and the oxen and the pioneer and the flannel and the bonnets but they don't want to know what was going on in the heads of the pioneers. They've externalized 19th century Mormonism and are not interested in the... No, no, they're talking about faith, repentance, baptism. They're talking about faith, but not faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
they're talking about repentance, but what they mean is an exterior repentance, not a transformation. They are talking about baptism as a way to get into the church, not a way to rise as a new spiritual person, to grow into a person that is as mature as they are spiritually. And they're certainly not going to let you do that or talk to them as equals. They are not talking about the gift of the Holy Ghost as the only means to get the truth. They have used the church public relations department and the correlation committee as the means to get the truth. So I don't know where we're talking about faith, repentance, and baptism in the gift of the Holy Ghost because they've got agencies of the church to block the operation of almost every one of those. So what do we... I don't know. <laughs> You're laughing. I'm, I'm saying this. You hit the switch and I, I'm going... I don't want this... I don't want this to be on the television because people will yell at me. <laughs> I'm tired of being yelled at. I'm the one who wants... I, I'm not saying that everything Joseph Smith said and did was right. No, he, he did things that I would not approve of. I, I feel that maybe it were a problem. They creates problems. But he was only a normal guy. But he had... He was a tremendous intellect and, and uh, I mean he's books and texts and interpretations and new versions of Isaiah it's beyond belief and where have we every, at every turn we just don't want to deal with that just, just show us the Conestoga wagons and that's all we want from the 19th century. You're kind of a fundamentalist. No I'm not I am not a fundamentalist. A fundamentalist wants to go back and live in the 19th century. I don't want to do that. I want us not to be ashamed of the heritage that we had through Joseph Smith. That's what I want.